The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Natasha Froze and this is Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we ask a few of the writers from the magazine to read their pieces. Coming up on the show, we have Matthew Paris on the next two years on the war in Ukraine, Lionel Shriver's fighting her own war against words, and Gus Carter on the return of the bison. First, Matthew Paris. I awoke in the small hours last week and began worrying about the Ukraine war. A friend had earlier taken me to task over the airy way I'd introduced an argument with the words, once we've won the war in Ukraine, as though this was a simple matter and just a question of when. But what does win mean? Does the searchlight of our intelligence, backed by what we already know, really illuminate the landscape ahead? Might things come to pass that we just haven't thought of? Even people as old as me remember wars that, though bloody and protracted, were fairly straightforward as narratives, with clear and final objectives and, in story terms, a reasonably clear-cut ending. The Second World War is an outstanding example. The Falklands are more minor but equally clear case. We knew what winning meant. Hitler and Galtieri knew what losing meant. Even after the Korean War, there was a simple and permanent partition. These were proper endings, followed by a stable state. We imagine, I suppose, that the present Ukraine business will turn out like one of those. Crudely, I thought at first that the Russians should just be pulverised, Putin humiliated into personal collapse, and all the territory Moscow had stolen returned to Kiev. After that, I thought, Europe would be at peace again, stabilised, sorted and ready to help rebuild Ukraine. But will it be anything like this? Let me throw into the mix of your own thoughts some doubts among mine. Everyone is speculating on Putin's leadership. Will he be overthrown? Is his presidency strong enough to survive a peace deal with Ukraine and the West? Might he be replaced by a yet fiercer militarist? Good questions, but there's another we don't seem to be addressing. Is Vladimir Zelensky secure? Admittedly, my time spent travelling in Ukraine was short and was about 15 years ago, but it left me with a more jaundiced view of that country than one hears in these blue and yellow flag-waving days. Ukraine is very populous, very poor and very far from the model of a modern liberal democratic western state that we might lazily suppose its people could skip happily towards once the war is won. Before Zelensky, we saw Ukraine's political and business culture as hopelessly steeped in corruption from the top down. Infrastructure and manufacturing, even before the Russian bombardment, were rusty and obsolete, making the country an industrial basket case utterly dependent on its most favoured status with the old Soviet Union. 
look at footage of the Ukrainian steel industry in the Donetsk region and remind yourself what a massive headache West Germany found it to drag East Germany into the modern European economy. Talk about levelling up. Wealthy Germany is still wrestling with the cost, cultural as well as economic. We may one day wonder why we cheered the Ukrainian struggle to keep the Russian-speaking Eastern Rust Belt. It's hard to see how Ukraine could stand up in the winds of free market competition without a Herculean measure of assistance from the West. With a population exceeding 43 million, larger than Poland's and not far short of Spain, a great mountain of support over many years will be essential if we're to fortify democracy there once the Russian prop is withdrawn. Western voters may enjoy watching the flashes and bangs of Ukraine's valiant efforts in self-defence. We may cheer as British-donated weaponry arrives there. But once the pyrotechnics cease and our taxes rise to pay for reconstruction, and if there are any more fake stories about Mrs Zelensky going on shopping expeditions to Paris, while rumours about where Western money goes once it reaches Kiev creep into the media, then the spirit of unquestioning generosity may begin to flag across the European continent. Ukraine's rapid accession to EU membership is surely for the birds. Free movement with millions seeking better opportunities would become a huge headache. One thing, though, that we and the EU single market could do to help would be to extend a generous free trade deal to their emerging economy. The US did something similar for Mexico, but it caused fury as the American motor industry began to emigrate. Fasten your seatbelts then for something similar here as companies switch their manufacturing to low-wage Ukraine. And is the country now, or could it fast become, a proper democracy, enjoying the rule of law, an independent judiciary, a professional civil service culture and vigilance over political corruption? Has everything about it changed just because one man, Zelensky, is in charge? You have to be a considerable devotee of the hero-in-history school to believe that a single individual can do so much. Heroes rarely last. Heroic though I do believe this Ukrainian president to be, his predecessors weren't, and the political and business culture wasn't. There was a chronic shortage of good, honest men and women at the top. If Ukraine was a rotten state, then in many ways it still will be, the suffering and sacrifice of its ordinary citizens notwithstanding. All-out war suppresses doubts about the polity whose preservation is being fought for. I don't believe in transfiguration. Let me leave you with a Grimm's fairy tale story no less implausible than today's Walt Disney version. Imagine, it's the winter of 2023-24. Putin, or his successor, inch towards a deal. Whispers of a compromise ceding Crimea to Moscow or some such circulate. Kiev cries, never. Biden, Schultz, Macron and perhaps more quietly Sunak or Starmer privately urge Zelensky not to make Crimea a deal-breaker. He hesitates because a new Ukrainian patriot party is emerging on his militaristic right, no surrender. 
Trapped, Zelensky begs Western powers for cover. We want to save him, but after nearly two years of war, we need these ruinous hostilities to end, and believe Ukraine's people do too. Ordinary Ukrainians, cold and hungry, are desperate for emergency Western aid on an ever costlier scale, while Kiev, where domestic politics is beginning to fracture, clamours for more tanks and missiles to retake Crimea. Western patience grows thinner. And we look back on this winter with, yes, almost nostalgia. A time when it all seemed so simple. Winning, it turns out, was the easy bit. That was Matthew Paris. Next, Lionel Shriver. The University of Washington Technology Department has banned the word housekeeping. Not because the problematic noun is overtly ist, ableist, sexist, racist, ageist. By now, you must know the ist list. No, because it feels gendered. Would that they'd simply banned housekeeping. I hate scrubbing the shower. This month, the University of Southern California's School of Social Work proscribed the word field. Field work might have unpleasant connotations for the descendants of slaves. Sorry, descendants of enslaved people. Nouns that reference persons, like, you know, doctor, are reductive and dehumanizing. A field of study is henceforth a practicum. Presumably, we'll now protect corn crops from pasture mice, and the British Army's highest rank will be a meadow marshal. What about Matthew 6.28? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the practicum grow. They do not labor or spin. Righteous, underemployed academic mischief-makers once occupied themselves with euphemism churn. We've no sooner biddably started calling black people in the U.S. African-Americans than we're informed that hyphenation is othering and we're meant to employ the jagged acronym BIPOC instead, which sounds like a disfiguring disease. But lately, These strong-arming semantic scolds are keener on simply smashing to smithereens whole flights of freshly verboten vocabulary, the linguistic equivalent of clay pigeon shooting. So if you think you're modern for having registered that JIP is rude, you're way behind the times. American is rude. Only U.S. citizen will do. Seminole is sexist. Ballsy, alas, attributes personality traits to anatomy. Forget lame, lest you trivialize the experience of the disabled. Yikes, I mean people living with disabilities. Why? Speaking of lame, Stanford University's Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative released its recommendations in December. Our compendium of terminological trafe runs to 13 pages. After plowing through this whole po-faced document, whose philological massacre would erase the very history it feigns to respect, I was dismayed to learn that I can't even commit suicide anymore.
much as we can now only have pretzels on planes. We can't play to the peanut gallery either, as it refers to the cheapest and worst section in theaters where many black people sat during the vaudeville era. Prefer audience, which doesn't mean the same thing, but never mind, because clear communication is these folks' least concern. Also of no importance, eloquence, lucidity, and concision. A guru is rather a subject matter expert, or more snappily, an SME. The goal of these worthies? We all write as badly as they do. Killing two birds with one stone, and asserting there's more than one way to skin a cat, will consign you to the naughty step, as both expressions normalize violence against animals. Exclaiming, I killed it, about your presentation at work, is sure to make your mates blanch. (gasps) Whoops. The home office has banned the word mate, for reasons unexplained. Perhaps white men found supremacist solidarity in the term. Come now, doing a good job should not be equated with death. Killing it could also be triggering if someone close to the recipient actually was killed. That was a weird slip on the EHLI's part, for elsewhere in the document, triggering is also exiled to the cornfield, um, corn land. Because triggering is, well, triggering. Indeed, one of the delights of this wholesale lingual slaughter is that the Wokies are starting to ban their own jargon. All those brave rape survivors and cancer survivors, they're now persons who have experienced or have been impacted by what have you. Preferred pronouns is out. Astonishingly, people of color is out. Bloody hell, victim is out. And victim is one of the identitarian crowd's favorite words. Hugh is altogether dodgy, regardless of innocent etymology. Black anything has been binned. Black ball, black sheep, black list, black box. Any day now, fear of the dark will constitute a hate crime. Thank God we rarely have blackboards anymore, except whiteboards must be nixed as well if they're seen remotely as an improvement. White hat, white paper, chucked. Red is bad, indigenous peoples. Yellow is bad, Asians. The only primary color we're left with is blue, as in feeling blue, because the pages of your dictionary now look like those lacy paper snowflakes children snip at Christmas. Wild factual inaccuracy doesn't bother these feverish censors in the slightest. Progressives recently raised a ballyhoo about nitty-gritty, which first ostensibly meant the dreadful detritus left behind in the bottom of slave ships, a definition so grisly you couldn't make it up. Except that someone did. 
The noun didn't enter the English lexicon until the 1930s. Similarly, the horrifying neo-no-no, call a spade a spade, clearly traces to spade as shovel, with zero etymological relationship to spade as pejorative. I spent half an hour researching the uncertain origins of Indian summer, for which the EHLI insist we substitute late summer. Doesn't mean the same thing, but who cares? Soon we'll be so sensitive that we communicate by pointing and grunting. Nowhere did I dig up that a term for a surprisingly agreeable October infers that indigenous people are chronically late. Inconsistency doesn't bother these folks either. Shunning straight, we're to substitute heterosexual. Yet homosexual is a medicalized word and out the window. Our minders really tip their misguided hand in their denunciation of culturally appropriative expressions, such as bury the hatchet or powwow. English is intrinsically appropriative, which is why it enjoys by far the largest lexicon of any language on earth. English is greedy. It overcomes the enemy by absorption, like some sort of sponge monster. It's a voracious tongue that eats foreign jibber-jabber for breakfast. Embrace, theft even, is its greatest strength. Only appropriation has enabled our language to take over the world. Tragically, since we need to retain at least a pigeon vocabulary to describe the people who concoct this stuff, they've even tossed stupid on the scrap heap. Instead, we're to describe such specimens as boring, which is on the intellectually deficient side. For S-word people can be highly entertaining, especially when they don't mean to be. That was Lionel Shriver. And finally, Gus Carter. The Bleen is just north of Canterbury. It's ancient woodland, so ancient that a couple of Chaucer's pilgrims mention it, now managed by a conglomerate of well-meaning wildlife trusts and charities. Drive through a small industrial estate and past a garage and you'll reach the visitor centre. Beyond that is bison country. Four wild European bison now roam the 50 hectares of woodland and scrub, merrily smashing through young birch trees and tearing up the earth. They have been introduced as part of a rewilding project. The latest, the first male of the herd, was brought over from Germany two days before Christmas. Rewilding is controversial and easily mocked. After all, bison went extinct in Britain just after the Ice Age, about 10,000 years ago, around the time that Doggerland was consumed by the North Sea. What possible need could there be for them now? Paul Whitfield, the tweed-wearing, ponytail director of the Wildwood Trust, makes a convincing case. Traditional conservation hasn't been working, he says, and given how barren and depleted the countryside is, we can't simply conserve, we need to recreate. We're trying to protect something that is already massively damaged, he says. Paul Hadaway, director of conservation at the Kent Wildlife Trust, agrees. 
In traditional conservation, we would have gone out and coppiced an area of woodland and burned all the brush and stacked all the logs neatly and not left any dead trees because of that almost Victorian obsession with tidiness. Hadaway changed his mind about conservation after visiting the Nepp Estate, a half-hour's drive from Gatwick, which pioneered rewilding in the UK. I was standing there in a field and thinking, well, that's in the wrong place, that shouldn't be there, but when I heard turtle doves and nightingales and saw peregrines nesting in a tree and there were yellow hammers, I thought, hang on a minute, this is all the stuff we've been micromanaging to try to preserve. Nep is just letting go. Bleen is an experiment. The woods have been separated into three sections, one with bison, another that will soon have English longhorn cattle and Iron Age pigs, and another that will be a control, managed using current conservation techniques. The idea is that the bison and the other so-called ecosystem engineers can do to the landscape what no mechanical process can replicate. They are already clearing pathways through the undergrowth, rolling around in the earth, demolishing trees and stripping them of their bark. That, in turn, should allow for more varied plants, which means more insects and more predators to feed on them. Only large herbivores can create that kind of happy chaos. I see the romance of bison, and believe that experiments like this are a good thing, and I love the idea of a wilder Britain. I want to be able to show my children nightingales and slow worms and water voles, but I also want English farmers, like my late grandfather, to be able to keep eking a living out of the land. And it still sounds a little eccentric to bring back the megafauna of a previous epoch. The decline of English wildlife is recent, while bison went extinct in Britain before the dawn of history. How can their absence be to blame? The answer lies in what we've done to the countryside. A few hundred years ago, there were cow herders letting their cattle loose on the commons. When that unmanaged land was enclosed, all that scrubby, semi-wooded wilderness died off. That's what the bison are supposed to bring back. But if rewilding is to have a significant effect, doesn't it mean letting go of vast swathes of English farmland? Not according to Whitfield. Instead, it's about changing the way we treat the land that is already protected. Farmers, he says, are more receptive than you might think. At the end of last year, Liz Truss hinted that she wanted to scrap the post-Brexit farming subsidies, which paid farmers for things like planting hedgerows in place of fencing to create more habitats for birds and small animals. The nature lobby was appalled, but plenty of farmers weren't happy either. They're coming around to the idea of a cultivated wilderness. Still, I worry about the dangers of marauding bison. For every 800 interactions, a bison will attempt to gore a human. If there was a London suburb with those kinds of odds of getting stabbed, I'd probably avoid it. What would happen to the oblivious dog walker if their overexcited terrier came face to face with almost a ton of muscle? It's exactly the same as taking your dog for a walk across a farm, Whitfield argues. If you've got a field full of bullocks and you take a dog off the lead, you're an idiot. About four or five people are killed by cattle each year in Britain. Dog walkers are able to stroll through bison sanctuaries in the Netherlands and, so far, there haven't been any deaths. Bleen, it turns out, is ringed by Jurassic Park fencing. There's an inner electric fence and an outer, taller fence, thanks to the Dangerous Wild Animals Act, 1976. The bison are nowhere to be seen. Instead, we go to look at a domesticated bison in the next-door wildlife park. Orsk trots out of his stable and up a small, grassy mound in the middle of the enclosure. His flank and rear are like that of normal cattle, but his shoulders are vast, as if he spent too long on the gym bench press. Up there on his little hillock, Orsk looks majestic and absurd. That was Gus Carter. And that's it for this week. 
If you enjoyed the episode, why not pick up a copy of the magazine to read more? I'm Natasha Froze, and do join us again next week. <laughs>